brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome back to 1050 Bascom. Today we are joined by Jesse Munson to discuss Congress. Jesse is a PhD student in the UW-Madison Political Science Department, where she focuses on American politics, political institutions, and elections. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a bit of Congress 101 for our audience. Who is eligible to be Speaker of the House? What does the Speaker of the House do? And why is the job so important? Well, as far as how the Speaker is chosen, there really constitutionally aren't all of that many requirements to be the Speaker, other than that you're chosen by the whole House. It's the first item of business in each new Congress and they have votes until a speaker is chosen because no other business can proceed without someone leading the chamber. And typically before the votes happen on the floor, each party will choose a nominee and then that will move forward to a roll call vote of the whole chamber. And while each party has a nominee, there's no real requirement for the members on the floor to vote for that nominee. They can vote for someone else if they want to. And the other interesting constitutional, I guess, lack of a requirement is they don't necessarily have to be a member of the House. They don't have to be elected, though that's never happened. As far as what the Speaker does, the Speaker has a very multifaceted job. So one of the things they do is they speak for and they act as a spokesperson for the majority party in the House. So they coordinate their party's members behind um, the party's agenda so they can punish and reward party members depending on their behavior. They assign committee assignments and can take them away. That's a um, potential form of punishment they can use against rebellious members. They also manage business on the floor. They work with the rules committee to determine the rules under which the debate around a bill will be structured, so what amendments are allowed, how long the debate is, and so usually they try and tailor those rules around trying to get what they want, so in in terms of how restrictive or open those rules are. uh, They are also just a representative for their own constituency, so they do vote. There are other legislatures and styles of government where you just have a nonpartisan presiding officer, which kind of means that um, the people who elected that, that person don't really get a vote, though it's kind of a coveted or at least like honorable position to have. That's not true here. Uh, The speaker does vote. And then they also do things like they raise money for their party, which is a concern that I've definitely seen um, leveraged against our new speaker, Mike Johnson, in terms of his ability to raise money, because that's something that McCarthy was very good at, um, was appealing to PACs and his connections with corporations to try and uh, support the party monetarily. And then the last thing is that they're the second person in the line of secession behind the vice president. Well, you mentioned our new Speaker of the House is Representative Mike Johnson. So he is a Republican from Louisiana's 4th Congressional District. 
I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about who Representative Johnson is and how he became the eventual Republican nominee for the Speaker of the House. So Mike Johnson is a fourth term representative. Before he was elected to Congress in 2017, he served for a term in the Louisiana State House of Representatives. And before that, he was a constitutional lawyer. He's been a longtime member of the Christian right, and a lot of his legal work has been supporting organizations related to that, Christian causes, freedom of religion um, efforts, as well as defending opponents of abortion and gay rights. Once he was elected to Congress, he served as the chair of the Republican Study Committee, which is kind of a uh, conservative ideological faction within the Republican Party. It's actually the biggest caucus ideologically in Congress right now. He was also the vice chair of the House Republican Conference from 2021 to 2023, and he was one of the 147 Republicans who voted to decertify the 2020 election results. He is also the speaker with the shortest previous experience in the House. I don't know ever, but he's like one of the two least experienced. And so there are those that wonder if that will affect him in terms of his ability to have relationships with members and get them to follow his lead. And the Democratic caucus on the other side, how have they been responding or how did they respond to the speaker vacancy? And how have they been responding to Johnson's leadership thus far? So their response to the vacancy, for one, they voted for it in terms of the motion to vacate. And so a lot of the arguments behind that is they saw McCarthy as someone who was kind of unreliable in terms of his inclination to placate the far right. Now, maybe from his perspective, that was advantageous, but for them, that's not a benefit. And so one of the examples of that is just even that that motion to vacate could be introduced by one member. Back when Nancy Pelosi was the speaker, she actually heightened that threshold. So where it wasn't just one member that could um, introduce that resolution. And as part of McCarthy's deal with some of the further right Republicans, in order to get the winning vote to become the speaker, he actually brought that threshold back down to one member. And I think that 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 backfire on his part really underscored, um, or at least the Democrats probably think that really underscored their critiques of him before. In terms of how they handled the vacancy, four Democrats tried to put forward measures that would actually extend the powers of the temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry. They were really concerned about just getting something moving through the House. And so one of the proposals, there was just four of them though. So this isn't a ton of Democrats doing this but it was definitely an effort that had mixed support. Also, all of this allows Democrats a really open opportunity to campaign against the Republicans in terms of talking about how they have this majority in Congress and now they can't get things done with it. They're so busy fighting internally that they can't lead. And that's gonna be a theme that they probably stay on. And they have been on as well. This isn't something that's new. But uh, one of the risks they had in terms of voting for this motion to vacate was just that they risked having someone in the speaker's chair that was less willing to compromise with them. Because one of the things to get all the Republicans to form a majority to vote for someone, they needed someone who could placate the mainstream, the moderates, and then also the further right. And Mike Johnson definitely has the credibility on a lot of their policy and ideological issues to be that person. So it will be interesting to see how he will handle that 
being the compromised candidate, but not necessarily having a record of being an ideological compromiser. It's interesting you mentioned that because there was a speech on the floor by Chip Roy a few days ago saying, I want my colleagues, my Republican colleagues, he's a Republican, to give me one thing that I can go back and campaign on because he was very upset yeah, with the lack of um, legislation going through since they've been internally fighting. I'm wondering, for the Democrats, there's obviously a negative in the sense that without a speaker, you can't get legislation on the floor. But do they benefit either in their campaigns or otherwise from having the Republicans in this internal fight? I think they can definitely frame it that way going Mm -hmm. into 2024. They can campaign on this issue of um, the Republicans can't lead. Why would you continue to vote for them? It's going to probably be a frame that they're going to use more. Not that I really like to predict anything because we still have quite a bit of time before the campaigning really ramps up. So I don't know. I I try and play what I might predict to happen pretty close to the vest, but that's going to be a frame I think they'll probably want to use regardless. Speaking of those fights, a lot of the internal disagreements have been over how to fund the government and what does or does not get included in that funding. Congress just passed legislation to extend the time that they have to fund the government through the new year. Um, So avoiding that shutdown that was supposed to happen or was scheduled for November 17th. Can you walk us through kind of how we got here and how funding might work? Yeah, I think that this laddered approach definitely helps how Congress is able to meet its deadlines in terms of like when you pass a budget all at once you have 12 different bills that get bundled together and so by splitting them up he's definitely maybe kicked the can down the road a little bit but um, in some ways kind of I guess there's two ways this could go it could make things easier because they're passed in smaller chunks so the fight may be over less legislation I would say or it could mean that they have to have a fight multiple times to get all the pieces through So while it appears on the surface to give them more time, I'm not entirely sure if that will help them. It really depends on if he's able to rally support against these as they go forward. And I think there's a lot of evidence, you know, the compromise spending bill that he did get through maintains funding from basically 2022 levels. And he didn't really get all that much Republican support on that. He got a lot of support from Democrats, which probably is something that these um, rightmost members of his party are going to be waiting in the wings saying, okay, well, we're, we're either going to let you have a honeymoon period because you're learning how to lead and you just got this job and we need to fund a government or potentially they're going to backlash on him. I heard some whisperings of that maybe some of these um, rightmost faction Republicans are planning on stalling some procedural votes, but I honestly don't know what the latest is on that. And with these funding debates and sort of these procedural inconsistencies that have been happening in Congress with the resolution to remove Speaker McCarthy, how does this relate to growing levels of distrust in our government and sort of how the public is responding to the operations of our elected officials. Okay, so they definitely contribute. I think there are kind of three big political science concepts that came to mind um, and come to mind when I think about this. In general, distrust in government has been increasing not entirely consistently, but majorly since 1958. There are a few ways that political science scholars have kind of explained this, just in terms of congressional politics and conflict. So one of those um, is there are a couple political scientists named Hibbing and Tice Morse, and they look at why citizens 
they're frustrated with Congress so much they don't really have a great opinion of it. And their explanation for it is that we don't like, as humans, we don't like conflict. And that's often summed up in the sentiment, you know, I just wish everybody would come together and it would be really orderly and there would be this third way. Mm -hmm. And that's how we, there's like this third way of getting things done and no one's going with it. But if we look at the institutional design of Congress, it's supposed to be conflictual. In Federalist 51, James Madison talks about ambition must be made to counter ambition. And so it's, it's discussion, it's debate, it's jostling for a solution that's palatable enough that induces compromise. And so the more that this push and pull in Congress happens, psychologically, we don't just as humans don't particularly like that. Another relevant theory, I think, in this conversation is something called Fenno's Paradox. And it's basically how we talk about that citizens don't like Congress. If you look at some polls I've seen, like when we teach 104, our intro to government class, people like Congress less than used car salesmen <laughs> and things like that. And so, but one of the dominant themes with that is that citizens don't like Congress as a whole, as this kind of like abstract institution, but they do like their member. And a lot of members contribute to this impression by saying, you know, oh, Congress, they've all got Potomac fever, mm -hmm. and they're all just so out of touch, and it's a big old swamp out there. And then these campaigners um, and these specific members capitalize on the fact that, you know, either they know their constituents or whatever it might be, and they say, well, I'm the solution to that. I'm one of you. I'm not like that. And so while they're helping themselves get elected, they're also doubling down this impression that Congress as an institution is something that people don't like and that it's something to be frustrated at for whatever your problems are. The last thing I think that's relevant for this is looking at party brands and specifically looking at valence brands. There are two components to a party's brand. One of them is like the ideological positions of its members. And the other part, which we call the valence, is like the non-ideological legislative performance of the party. So how good it is at getting things done. The other part of this that's kind of been isolated is this idea that we punish parties for being involved in scandal. One of our own professors, Professor Powell, has looked at this in more depth than, um, and has kind of shown that voters do, within a certain bound, impact their judgments of parties based on these things, like how they perform non-ideologically. If we extrapolate that to what's happening now and this factionalism within the Republican Party, when a party can't pass a budget or risk shutdown, then that contributes to all of these things. So it's conflictual because they're having all these problems, they're having all these votes, they have people that are, that are frustrated and they see that and they can't seem to get anything done. They generally have a low opinion of Congress and they don't like scandal, and you could probably extrapolate that to infighting among parties and between parties. And so I think that these um, like government shutdowns and everything are um, symptomatic of that, and I don't think it takes much for uh, voters to kind of recognize these elements, even if they don't know that it's called the paradox or whatever it might be. I think that these trends all are relevant to this discord that we see within parties and between them. Is it possible that the leadership vacancy could affect voters' decisions in 2024? And if so, how? It definitely already is. Uh, 
changing and affecting voters' opinion and perception of government. So we just had a YouGov poll. I think The Economist did it. And they found that most Americans believe that not having a speaker hurt the government's ability to function. And this was a view that was held by Democrats and Republicans. But in terms of whether it will affect voters' decisions in 2024, it really depends. I think it feeds into this bigger issue that there's Republican infighting and that that affects the ability of the Republican Party to govern. The question is whether that's going to be salient in 12 months. I think that's the big question in terms of what's the time horizon for voters' memories. And then also, how do the parties frame this conflict? Do we have people who are framing themselves as a solution? How are the Democrats going to frame that? How are the Democrats going to frame that amidst whatever we find happens after today, basically? The other thing that's kind of relevant here is the idea that like most Americans have a pretty strong party ID. And so is it bad enough that they'll completely change over? That may kind of keep the status quo a little bit. The other thing is that some of it is on what voters' opinions of government are, but some of it is just, will they feel strong enough, whatever it is that they're feeling, that they're going to turn out to vote? Because who turns out is going to be the big factor. That's the conversation we had in the last elections about, is the Dobbs decision going to make people upset enough about abortion that they will turn out? And that could be another narrative that the Democrats use going forward, especially with having someone like Mike Johnson as a speaker. Depending on how he acts and how his ideology translates to his speakership, that could be something that they could um, rally against the speaker. We've seen campaigns against the speaker when Pelosi was speaker. She was kind of demonized in the Republicans' campaign materials. Um, And so it may be that the Democrats try and capitalize again, getting to people to turn out over concerns over abortion rights and other things like that. And looking towards the future, Are there options for policymakers to avoid shutdowns or continued crises, um, especially related to appropriations like the ones that we're seeing right now? There have been a couple different things recently that have been introduced by members. One act, and I don't remember what they're called um, exactly off the top of my head, but one, one set of members has tried to introduce this measure that would mean that if Congress failed to meet its appropriations or its spending deadlines, then they would have to stay in D.C. until they figured it out and got something passed, um, and then they couldn't spend money for their travel allowances and some other things. They had to stay and finish the work. The other proposal that I've seen that's kind of also been supported by a mixed bipartisan delegation of members in the House is that a measure that would implement an automatic continuing resolution if the Congress failed to meet their date that they needed to finish the budget by, um, just to stop the government shutdown, because that affects employees and all of the other services that we know it affects. But ultimately, I think that probably the bigger issue is that we need people that have a really credible commitment to getting these things done because we've had rules changes to try and make this easier. The Congressional Budget Act of 1974 is a really good example of that, trying to cut down um, on the obstacles to getting budgets passed, things like suspending the filibuster. And so until we can fix the cleavages that divide the parties and divide within the parties, we're not necessarily going to be able to overcome those just by changing the rules. So I know we've been talking a lot about the House today, but with these appropriation bills moving forward, 
what do we have to look out for in the Senate? What do we need to keep our eyes on in the other half of Congress? Well, I think one of the interesting dynamics is that as much as we've talked a lot about Mike Johnson and who he's trying to appeal to and appease in the House, he walks a really delicate line because he is preparing legislation that goes to a democratically held Senate. And so he is going to have to compromise in order to get through the Senate across the president's desk, anything that he wants to do, whether that be budget or otherwise. And so that's going to be hard because it's kind of a sliding scale. The more you put things that are from like the right end of his party into legislation, the more that the moderates and the Democrats are less likely to get on board. The more that you compromise, the more of the people on the right wing of his party are going to want to jump off and obstruct or just not support these votes. But he's also dealing with reality that whatever comes out of the House has to pass through the Senate if he wants to actually change the law. Um, I also, just non-budget wise, have been really interested in what Tommy Tuberville is doing in the Senate in terms of this, I think it's up to eight month hold on military nominees. And it's an interesting dynamic to me, especially just in the fact that he's leveraging his position against the Pentagon's policy on abortion travel against maybe military readiness Mm -hmm. in terms of how many of these top military positions are filled. So a lot of people are making an argument saying, I get that you want this, but we don't want our military lacking these top officers. We've even seen um, some of these people in these posts that are filling in, you know, the deputy to, to the head person having, I think one of them had a heart attack recently because he was spent, he had spent months doing two jobs. And so that's just kind of a sign that, that there might be a breaking point. And so how far are you willing to go on one, one of the party's priorities, which is this abortion issue, with another one, which is supporting the military and making sure you have a military that works and is ready to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think we should? Not necessarily. I think we've kind of um, done a really good, I think we've done a fairly good job at kind of looking at what the big issues are with Mike Johnson's speakership and some of the dynamics within Congress and within his party specifically. Finally, let's end this episode with a fun question. Jesse, can you please tell us about your llamas? I am so glad you asked. Yes, I own two llamas. One of them lives in Washington State, which is where I'm from. He lives with a friend. Uh, He has a beautiful retirement with a bunch of other retirees enjoying a big pasture of green grass. My animal that I brought to Wisconsin, he lives in Edgerton. He's seven years old. He is a national champion. He is also registered with pet partners as a therapy llama, so he can visit nursing homes and schools. And he's just generally an all-around great guy. I love that so much. What Does is schools name? extend to universities? universities? I, ideally, I've looked at that. You know, when we get them registered with pet partners, they are registered at a certain level of complexity. And we have not reached the highest level. And I would definitely, based on the requirements, say that college library is a complex environment. So I would love to. I'm working on getting us to that point. But as a grad student, we probably don't get to put in as much um, experience and exposure as we would like to. And his name is Murano. Murano! What about the one back home? His name is Zion. 
Zion. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Awesome. What's a food llamas like that people like wouldn't expect a llama to like? That's a good question. You know, mine don't get a lot of treats, so I don't have a lot of first-hand experience. Well, they're world champion. Can't be having yeah. cheat days. No. I would say that um, one of the more interesting things I've seen them eat, which is not interesting in the course of animals, but but Zion back home, he can eat an apple while I hold it. So he, he'll eat all around the core. You just turn <laughs> the apple and he'll take bites off of it. He can also drink water out of a water bottle. So... What a wonderful <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you, Jesse, so much. Yeah. This thank is wonderful. You.